I'm so mad because I thought of a topic. Because for a second I thought it was my topic. And I came up with one that was monthly specific. Like, hinged on it being November. And then I realized. You're going to be in December. What is it? What's the topic? (laughs) No nut movies that don't make you want to nut. (laughs) No, no. In November. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along his route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts. My name is Andrew Stasulis, and I am joined here by... Eric Marsh. And... Ryan Saunders. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a topic for the week, and the other two are challenged with bringing films to the table that meet the topic, address the topic, buck up against the topic. It was my turn to pick. I was feeling the holiday spirit a bit. Marsh and I both uh, teach at DePaul, and Ryan is also a a DePaul alum, and DePaul's uh, school year works in a very interesting way. We're not on semesters. We're on trimesters or quarters, I guess, if you decide to take summer school. So the way our... Our, our school always kind of works out is we, we end the fall session right before Thanksgiving, uh, which makes the holiday extra sweet for me because it's the, the end of a quarter, the beginning of a, of a nice long break. And it's just always been one of my favorite times of the year. I, I think I've always preferred um, the holiday of Thanksgiving over Christmas. I feel like Christmas just comes with so much baggage uh, for for a lot of people. And uh, to me, Thanksgiving is just really about getting together with people that you love, enjoying good food, uh, and and uh, checking in, checking in with with all that you have to be thankful for throughout the year. So that's what I asked the boys to bring us films that they are thankful for. You know, I said, bring me movies that make you thankful, thankful to be uh, a part of, of, you know, this just wonderful, wonderful mode of expression movies. Uh, and that's what they did. They brought me a very long double feature, probably <laughs> the longest double feature. I know we've I had long so. movies on the pod, but this is this is together. The I'm I'm going to go on a limb and, and guess that this is the longest double feature we've had thus far. But that's okay because I had a light week as I was ending my classes. So let's. Bring the movies out. Let's dive right in. The boys can can tell us what movies they brought and and why they are thankful for these particular films. 
Usually we like to start with the earlier of the two, and by a hair, I think that is Ryan's movie. So Ryan, what did you bring for everyone to the Thanksgiving table? Where to begin? When I was thinking about the topic, I had a couple different ideas, a couple different angles I was trying to interpret for myself. Because I do feel like when I watch movies, sometimes I do end with the thought like, wow, I'm really grateful that exists. And I think it can be for a variety of different reasons, whether it's a particularly special film that really spoke to me. And I feel as though I've come across a work of art that speaks to my heart, and then I'm grateful for that. Or perhaps a film feels like a miracle, whether that's from a restoration, something that's been rediscovered, or just something that was produced against all odds considering the circumstances of its production. So I, there were a lot of different things I was thinking about. And one of the first people that came to my mind actually was the filmmaker Ho Xiao Shen, who has recently been revealed that he is suffering from dementia and has retired from filmmaking. And I was thinking about how cruel that disease is, of course, for anyone, but for someone whose mind is is so unique. I mean, Ho Xiao Shen completely changed the way I look at the world and, and cinema, and I think, like, God, what a, what a just a devastating curse to be put on on that mind. But then I started thinking about illness, and there is a filmmaker who I've become incredibly enamored with this year, the, the Portuguese filmmaker João Cesar Monteiro who was introduced to me by my dear friend Nabil uh, as saying Jazizer Montero is ultimately like the the Lisbon filmmaker, right? We did our Lisbon episode a few months ago and Nabil had pointed out like, well, if you want to get to the heart of Lisbon, it's Jazizer Montero. And I watched one of his films earlier this year, God's Comedy, and like immediately fell in love. And I was like, oh, I felt like as though I was being spoken directly to, I was like, this is a, a freak a genius, an ultimate master. I found like I felt like a connection with, uh, and I went through basically his whole filmography this year. And there's just a handful of small things I haven't seen, but I was saving one film for the for the end, and that is his final film. And I gotta say, as grateful as I am for it, just as being a guy on the inside and, you know, watching the films of Jao Cesar Montero, I want to caution the audience. Uh, this is not the film to start with <laughs> Jao Cesar Montero. And I, <laughs> so I just want to say I'm grateful also for my compatriots here. I hope you both enjoyed it. And I'm excited to hear what you think of this film. But I will con I'll concede at the top, you know, this is not the film to start with Jao Cesar Montero <laughs> if you're going to, like, dive into his filmography. But that is, you know, that's what I did. I chose the film Come and Go from 2003, also known as Vaivim. Now, the, one of the main reasons I chose it and am so grateful for it is that Jazazir Montero was essentially wasting away with cancer at the time of its production. He didn't even live to see the film's premiere at the Cannes Film Festival. And it was something that Paulo Branco I don't know if he necessarily challenged him, but like had kind of advised him saying like, you know, you can't make a three hour film in your condition at this point in your life. Like it's it's not going to work. And being like the prankster and the perverse man that he is just said, no, I'm going to do it. And so this film, the reason I kind of cautioned saying like, oh, it might not be the best entry point is because it's a synthesis 
of all of his work, but stripped away of just about everything. The the career of Jao Cesare Montero has like two halves, basically. His his first half is very poetic, exquisitely beautiful, full of allusions to Portuguese history and myth, and they're opulent films. The second half of his career is when he started playing the lead role in many of his films, and he became like a central figure, particularly his nasty little man character, Jao de Deus. Now this film, Come and Go, is about a new character, also played by Montero, called Jao Vuvu, who is, much like Jao de Deus, uh, often spouting absurd wisdom and aphorisms while also being incredibly vulgar. If anything, Jao Cesare Montero is the ultimate vulgar auteur. It's so hard to talk about the specifics of this movie, but like to me, the perfect Jao Cesare Montero production, it almost feels like a, a Philip Roth novel, where it's like ex- extremely exquisite and eloquent and also very perverse. But Come and Go, at its core, the story of this film is Jao Vuvu takes the bus to the park to sit by a tree, and uh, because he's too sick to be able to walk there himself, even though the geographic proximity is actually quite close. At the same time, at his house, he's trying to hire a series of women to be uh, his cleaning woman. And he hires a new one every time, and he's very horny throughout, and he's got a lot of stuff to say, a lot of it very absurd and silly and uh, indulgent. And this film is indulgent. It's three hours long. It's, it's very, very slow. It's stripped bare of just about everything. It's as late style as late style gets. But I do think it's a masterpiece. And I don't know if that's because, you know, I, it helps to have seen the other films. I don't want to be like too, too tooting my own horn uh, just with this film, but I, I was deeply moved by this film. It, it is a challenge to sit through. It does a lot of really strange things to your brain. Um, but, you know, it's again, it's just one of those things where you love it so much you don't really even know how to talk about it. So I, I am very grateful for the cinema of Jao Cesare Montero. He's like now entered into my top 10 echelon of, of filmmakers. And I think this film is an incredibly touching way of saying goodbye to, to life and the world um, and to cinema. And yeah, I think I'm going to, <laughs> going to leave it there because I could just kind of spin in circles. Uh, around the park with Jao Cesare as I go on. So I'll I'll leave it at that. So that is Vaivem Come and Go from 2003. You know, it's funny that you say uh, this is not the film to start with, and and yet it's the film that you forced us to start with, you know? Well, Uh, I I didn't know that until I sat (laughs) and watched the damn thing. You could have presumed. The starting with a, the last film of a of an iconoclast <laughs> you know, would maybe be yeah. weird. I you, thought you take I th- us right there. You know? I thought it could be really interesting, and well, I, yeah, I we'll talk about that. Uh, <laughs> apologies. I'm grateful for you both. No, no, no. I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad. I, I, I just no, think it's look, interesting. No apology like, necessary. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It's just interesting, you know, that yeah. you would say that particular. Well, it's yeah. funny because I mentioned to Nabil, I'm like, hey, we're doing like an episode on gratitude, and I'm so thankful that he didn't need to do this. He didn't need to make this movie, this man who's dying. And he did. And I'm like, I'm grateful for that. What do you think, Nabil? And he's like, oh, yeah, great idea. That sounds fun. And then it was today when I was like, hey, tell me some more of your salacious... Montero stories, because uh, I'm like, I gotta entertain Marsh and Andy. I'm I'm nervous because they've never seen any of his films, and he's like, they've never. 
what have you done? <laughs> He's like, this is the worst place to start. I'm like, I know Debelia. I just got, you know, I wish you said that before, but it's okay. Don't worry, we can we can mentally work backwards and imagine the career that he had based on this film. <laughs> I know? just want to make sure you you get to see some of the other ones because they're yeah. they're really. I mean, again, I think this movie's amazing, but I, I, again, a little bit of apology and a little bit of gratitude right at the top from from Mr. Ryan here. All right, well, thank you, <laughs> thank you, uh, Marsh. I'm very familiar with the film and filmmaker that you brought, so why don't you tell our listeners? Uh, the the dish you've prepared for our Thanksgiving feast. Yes. Well, I I was uh, I was out of my mind trying to pick this week, as Ryan knows. I was bothering him uh, <laughs> with my indecision, and to be honest, I was dangerously close to picking uh, "Learning to Fly," the story of the nineteen ninety ninety one Chicago Bulls, the VHS tape. But I, I rewatched it and I was like, you, this is really not that sustainable to have like too much of a conversation, you know? So I had to dig a little deeper. As much as that like I, is an honest answer, like I'm, I'm very thankful for like the Bulls tapes uh, that I grew up with because like they are like documentaries and they're also like poetic cinema and they're also like propaganda like they're they're interesting objects but i i couldn't do it you know? <laughs> i want to be on the record that i said it was uh, a fun idea um yes but i will say at one point marsh is like what do you think if i did two of the tapes uh like is that okay <laughs> And I was like, dude, I have no fucking clue what those things even are. Like, I have no idea how to answer. I mean, I, I would have been down for yeah. it, you know? But, yeah. but I hear what you're saying. I hear yeah. what you're Maybe saying. Maybe another day, yeah. you know? And I wanted, of course, yeah, I wanted to find uh, I wanted to find something special. Uh, and I was ribbing Ryan in text saying, well, yeah, you played the cancer card. Easy for you to, <laughs> you know, say you're thankful for it or whatever. And so he said, you know, he said, follow your heart. You know, and that's exactly what I did. And that led me to uh, a filmmaker who was very formative for me and, and I know formative for, for you all and probably a lot of uh, listeners if they're our age or somewhere around there. Uh, Terrence Malick, ever heard of him? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, came around back to old Terry, who of course occupies one of the most unique positions in the history of American cinema, I think, which is a kind of an avant-garde filmmaker working with huge budgets in the Hollywood system, and especially uh, the 21st century work, you know, when he took off and, and left orbit, uh, essentially. And so he, you know, I'm just thankful that, yeah, he exists. I mean, not a lot of guys... Uh, have have been able to walk that path, you know, and it's not been easy for him, I know. But uh, we have him, and of course, the the mark that the thin red line made on me as uh, a fourteen year old and as a, a you know approaching forty, uh, it still has uh, you know the same power for me. One of my favorite movies of all time, uh, but of course, that's not what I picked. I had to go the Thanksgiving route and be a little literal about it. But I do want to mention uh, the film I picked, I saw when it came out with a huge group of bros, you know, in 2006. And we all went to Piper's Alley, you know, rolling out for 
the first Malik in six years and the second Malik in 40 years or whatever. And we were hyped uh, and it did not disappoint. And then my memory started to unfurl even more. And I remembered that in 2006, this brings me to you, Andy, where our lives started to to really intersect, you know, because we had been in class together a little bit in film school, and I was making a short film in the spring of 2006 called Action Cut Fuck, uh, which is a short about, you know, uh, an inept student filmmaker shooting a scene in a park, and it all sort of just like falls apart. That's the concept. And I had a, a friend of mine back out at the last minute, and it led to Andy being cast in the film, playing the role of the producer. And I mentioned this because I ripped off Terrence Malick in that movie. Having just seen The New World a couple months prior, I used the Wagner Das Rheingold clip uh, in the movie when they're setting up. They're like plugging in the XLRs and they're like getting the light meter and they're like blocking the shot. I used it ironically, uh, you know, as a joke, being like, yeah, you know, Malick used. The Wagner when the when the ships come to America and I'm gonna use it when people are like, yeah, plugging in an XLR cable. And I used a MIDI version of it too to make it an even more of like a parody. So it's like a computer programmed version of Das Rheingold in a montage in that film. And so I'm probably the first filmmaker to literally like steal from the new world. I mean, it was so fresh. Yeah, yeah, because you think real movies, it takes time for them to get made. I just yeah. made the student film in an afternoon. Ripped off Terry, had a laugh, you know? Impressive. So I remember the afternoon well. <laughs> yes, and Andy gave an amazing performance, an amazing performance. And I didn't even, I didn't really know you that well. And you came and you killed it. You're so great. Thank you. I had a good director. <laughs> anyway, thank you. Uh, that leads me to the film I chose, The New World, from 2006, written and directed by Terrence Malick. This is his take on the uh, sort of found, one of the founding myths of the United States of America, the story of Pocahontas and John Smith and Rolf and all the, all the boys and all the... Uh, nature to go along with it. It is, uh, of course, in the poetic style we all uh, know from Terrence Malick and certainly a, an evolution from the Thin Red Line sort of tentatively and then fully embracing this kind of like discontinuous mythopoetic uh, approach to cinema that he's continued to develop and, and apply to, to various things. But I feel like this movie was is the first like he's fully left uh, convention behind and even pretending that he's interested in like telling a Hollywood story mm -hmm. because he is in a certain sense there are stars in this film as we'll talk about Colin Farrell and Christian Bale but uh, yeah it's it's an unusual project uh, to have you know new line cinema investing 30 million dollars in for sure 
And uh, God, I mean, yeah, what, what is there to say? Uh, it is, uh, we watched the extended cut. There's multiple versions of it, of course. Uh, and so we watched the 172 minute version, which is divided up into 10 chapters, starting with the arrival of the colonists at Jamestown and going all the way to Pocahontas's death about 12 years later, something like that, right? So, uh, She's really, I think, of course, the, the heart of the film, and it centers around her relationship, of course, at first with Smith, and then contrasted in the second half with Rolf, and it's those marriages between them, right, that, that Malik is playing with in terms of exploring, uh, you know, the contact between these worlds that occurred. And, you know, it's a film that was received... Uh, mixed you know as i guess he he always is right but like i feel like a lot of people were were sort of like baffled or, or sort of like upset by this film even after thin red line you know and it's like the problem which is what i think makes this film super interesting is that he goes to great lengths to achieve a certain verisimilitude in period uh and in gesture and in in all that stuff and how it feels uh, and then, because he's Terrence Malick and he's dreaming, uh, takes insane sort of liberties with history, right? And so it's like a tension between these two things where it's like, okay, we can't like read this necessarily as history per se because it's a fucking dream, but uh, there's also a lot of real shit that's sort of like in there. I mean, again, it's like impossible to describe, but I feel like there's a paradox at the heart of the film that that is, it lies somewhere around there that we can talk about uh, that I find really interesting. And I think, yeah, I mean, it'd been, I realized I, I haven't even logged it on Letterboxd, which means I haven't seen it in 10 years. So uh, it was a thrill to revisit. Uh, I love it. I think it's an amazing film. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's the, that's the fucking new world, dude. We'll, we'll get into it. <laughs> yes, we will. Thank you, Marsh. Thank you. <laughs> Um, yeah, um, long movies. We got two very oh, yeah. long movies. Each of these is just about three hours in total running time. And there is so much to pick apart, you know, when you have one three-hour movie, let alone two three-hour films. But I guess, you know, I I, I think it might uh, be nice to just kind of... Uh, start like very very simply uh which is you know I, I i guess i would like to know a little bit more right about what particularly makes you thankful i know in both of your intros you know you said that that you know a few words on it but but i i i'd really like to to sort of start here right with with what we have to be thankful for in these films there's so much uh there's so much and and i think it might give us uh, a deeper understanding of of both of you you know of both of you of who you are and and what specifically like you know you're most thankful for in these films well you know, in the case of Come and Go, I'm, I'm of course, very thankful, you know, with, with the cancer angle, as I kind of brought up, that we were given this gift from someone 
as they were leaving, and they were not obligated to do so. As much of the film feels as like a selfish act because of how indulgent it is, I th- I'm grateful for the gift, right? So like there is that like simple element of it. Like this guy didn't even live to see the premiere. There's sequences near the end that are just like unbearably beautiful despite how vulgar they are because it's like Javuvu does die in the film and there's time spent in hospitals as he's wasting away. Jazizer Montero's has always looked like a Nosferatu bird man and he's aware of that and has like had jokes in his films about that like he there is a literal Nosferatu gag and in, in um, reflection recollections of the yellow house where he like comes out of a coffin he's one of the goofiest looking guys that's like ever mm-hmm. lived he looks like a weird little bird but in this film he really feels like a twig like he he's his body is failing him and his films are normally so lively and he feels so weak in this and so like there's that element that I'm like grateful that he took the time to make this film for us but him as an artist I'm also quite grateful for, and I think this film sums up a lot of what I'm appreciative of, of his work and his style, where at the end of the day, he's he's thankful for life in the sense of he he loves sex, laughter, music, sharing stories, talking with other people. His films are all about that. It's about love of history, love of life, uh, not being afraid of how perverse he is uh, to a fault. I mean, his characters in his films are disgusting. Like, (laughs) when I first saw God's Comedy, it's so foul. I was like, man, I'd never want to be in a room with this guy. (laughs) Like, I couldn't take it. But I love how honest it is. And and I I feel like I'm drawn to artists like that. It's one of the reasons I like Hong Sing Su or Fassbinder. It's like presenting themselves like fully on camera for us. Um, I admire that. And I, and I love Montero's sense of humor and his anarchy. So in that sense, I'm quite grateful for that. And I think it's like special then that when he seemingly had such, such little energy, he gave us something very stripped down and, and something for us as like a goodbye gift. So in that sense, I, I, I'm thankful for this film. I have to say, you know, when, uh, when I was watching it, I, I, I think I really keyed into that aspect of it. I was like, this is one of Ryan's guys right here. This is the kind of guy <laughs> Ryan, <laughs> Ryan loves, you know, everything about him. I was like, this is definitely one of Ryan's guys. And, and I have to say, I think in the way that you just sort of put it, you know, about like, oh, the idea of like hanging out with one of these guys, I'd much rather hang out with this one of your guys, like this guy, than uh, the other guy. Cave. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. I would not consider Cave one of my guys, <laughs> but he's got a similar. <laughs> no, there's kind of there's significant you know. overlap, but uh, but really, I do not think of Cave as one of my guys. Okay, <laughs> I right. think of Montero well, as yeah. <laughs> well, I'm afraid of Cave and like don't want to ever see another film of his uh but like <laughs> i i could watch a montero film like any day of the week <laughs> yeah yeah okay well I, me too i'll put myself in that category <laughs> like, i would like to dive deeper into montero's work and and i you know with the 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 film that we watched from cave i, I that's, i'm good with that yeah. you know that's all done that's, yeah that's good yeah <laughs> i felt like i i agree with andy in that i immediately was like okay yeah like this is one of ryan's guys and i I get it, you know, and if I can, if I can quote Pinkerton, who in the village voice said, uh, 
about Montero's worldview. Authority is invalid, corruption endemic, and death a release. Montero's sympathies went with the undesirables, the prostitutes, perverts, paranoiacs, lunatics, suicidals, and the artists, often a bit of each. And I was like, I get it. You know, like, this is, I mean, honestly, like, without, before I did research, I was like, this guy's also doing, like, a tramp thing. Like, this is his, like tramp right he's like i got a signature character right yes uh and i know this isn't literally the the character from the other films but like it is right essentially it is, it is. a guy that just like talks to people you know, talks to people and is really weird like mm-hmm. i figured there was the yeah like a sort of history there it's kind of like uh it's kind of like like uh you know you, you got a little bit of woody allen you got a little bit of monsieur hulot in there yeah. you know you got this this yes this this uh, facsimile of a man more than an actual man himself, you know. And it seems like that's sort of what he was like in real life, too. I mean, whenever I hear stories about this guy, I can't believe he existed. He's just like an anarchic spirit, a clear, like, piece of work. I mean, Nabil was texting me that Montero, it's funny, you know, you mentioned, like, he's like the tramp, right? Like, Charlie Chaplin. Montero literally used to, like, pretend he was homeless in downtown Lisbon and would just spend hours, like, collecting coin for a laugh because he's just like a freak you know he was just always up to something <laughs> he's, he's a weirdo and Nabil was telling me that he he knows this woman who was one of Paulo Branco's assistants uh and she like found the letters that Montero would write to Paulo Branco over the years and apart from the fact that they were like really vulgar <laughs> Montero used to he drew like penises all over them they're just like letters to Paula Bronco, just like covered with little cartoon penises. <laughs> like, just a friendly <laughs> reminder to keep funding him. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, and that's, you know, one of his most famous like tricks of being like a, a total dick was he was given all this state funding to make a Snow White film. And the film is like 90 percent a black screen. Right. There's no set or whatever. There's nothing. And like actors acted and thought they were in a movie, I think. I haven't seen that one. That one's like a bit of a pushing it to the limit for me. I'm glad it exists. It's like a little prank. You know, one thing I'll note too, I just want to say is that one of the reasons I said this is not the place to start is because as much of an experimental and formally intense filmmaker as he is, I think all of his films are conventionally entertaining. Uh, And Come and Go is not conventionally entertaining. Come and Go is like very stripped down you know it's like late 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 style there's one film of his i haven't seen the hips of john john wayne that is kind of like this i think too but his other films like you know they're very formal but they're lively they're funny they move actors showed up and and performed thinking that they were going to be in a movie and then just sort of discovered that they they weren't really in that movie. That kind of sounds like another filmmaker I know. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Terrence Malick. So, Marsh, let's dive a little bit deeper into what you are particularly thankful for with this movie. Yes. Well, on a very superficial level, and I already already posted about this online, but I was marveling this go-around that there is no visual difference between John Smith and Sonny Crockett, uh, who Colin Farrell played back to back in 2006. And Mike Smith alerted me to the fact that 
uh, Ken Jones even made a crack about it at the time and like his positive review of the new world being like, he's wandering around Jamestown like he just got out of a nightclub, you know? <laughs> and I and I can't stop thinking about it. Someone else told me this is this is just before he got sober. So like, you know, the new world and Miami Vice were like his tipping points. He says he doesn't even remember being in Miami Vice. Well, and I know for a fact, I know for a fact uh, what a bad time he had on the set of the New World with Terrence Malick, yeah. and that makes a whole bunch of that makes a whole bunch of sense. You know, I've probably told you about this story, or I, I know I've told you this story. But I was once having drinks in an Irish pub uh, with a guy who was one of the carpenters on the New World, and we had a big long conversation about his experiences as Whoa. as you know one of Jack Fisk's one of Jack's boys. Yeah, one of Jack's. <laughs> boys on the new world and he uh, aside from some you know um, amazing details just about again the production design the the building of the world he told me about witnessing like some of colin farrell's like breakdowns with malik um malik he said was you know doing very terrence malik like things with the actors which is often you know confusing the shit out of them uh, especially guys who probably aren't you know prepared for the way that he works and he said that there was one line reading particularly one of the stories he told me there was like a line reading you know, uh, it was like one line that Colin Farrell had to say as John Smith. And he's like, I shit you not. Terrence Malick had him say this one line like 90 times. Like he had him just say it over and over and over again. And Farrell just like had a meltdown, was screaming at him, screaming at everybody. Uh, so, yeah. You know, that all makes a whole lot of sense that this would probably be the one where he'd be like, I need to fucking, I need to get sober. I yeah. feel like. You work with Terry and Mike Mann back to back and you need to go, you, you need to see a doctor. You need to you dry know? out. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. No doubt about so, it. So yeah, just on a superficial level, just, yeah, again, connecting like Sonny Crockett and John Smith to me is just very funny. Um, but yeah, on a deeper level, I mean, I think. As a, a film editor, Malik, you know, changed changed the way uh, I certainly see uh, see movies and the way they can be constructed. And his his discontinuity is a uh, sort of continuous inspiration. I mean, as is his sort of like earnestness and honesty, which can even be almost corny, as people have accused him of being, uh, or naive, you know, but like. There's just an honest sort of like romanticism to him. And it's why anyone who rips him off has none of the feeling of the images that he creates, which uh, are full of life and feeling, you know. And I think, too, revisiting this film, I was really jamming on it as a sort of utopian sort of imagining, you know. Like, again, choosing to show us that, you know, like a better world is possible, even though uh, it's not really what happened, you know, like in an interesting way, in his interpretation of it. And again, you know, I hate to go here, but we're back in, this is like a Bush years double feature. Uh, again, you know, now oh, that yeah. we're back here. And there's an even... 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, well, it's, it's funny because when you did the Bush years, Marsh, I like almost picked come and go for it because when it was like so open ended, I'm like, oh, 2003, like I'll do this. And I was like, nah, there's there's uh, maybe some other day there will be a reason to bring this movie, but like definitely not Bush. And I got to say, was not expecting the, the photo of George Bush to make an appearance <laughs> the way it does. <laughs> no. Come and go. We weren't. We weren't at all. I don't even remember what I was talking about. But I, yeah, I guess the sort of utopian side of Malik I was really feeling uh, this go around. And again, he's just at this scale, you can't find a filmmaker who is like genuinely curious <laughs> about like their surroundings. Yeah. I mean, that's his process. His process is largely intuitive, backed by, of course, a great intellect, but it's like, yeah, Colin Farrell may be over there, but there may be a butterfly over here. So, you know, what are you looking at? You know, and he doesn't limit himself to the prescribed the storyboard, the shot, this and that. I mean, he uses 360 degree space. Uh, it's insane. And I think a funny connection between these films, too, is that they don't use lights. Either of these films don't use lights. I watched some of the behind the scenes features on The New World and the gaffer makes this insane, sarcastic remark where he's like, Oh, yeah, on the new world. Yeah. Uh, you know, we we spent all our time moving the equipment out of the shot. We never used it to light, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and wow. he was being dead serious. Yeah. And he was like, I've worked with Chivo for years. We've done some of the biggest outdoor lighting setups you've ever seen. And Malik was like, just put that away. It's either sun coming in or or it's nothing, you know? And I read uh, similarly, Ryan, that Montero at a certain point in his career just was like, Lights are out, you know, yeah. like they're done. Mm -hmm. They're fake. I'm I'm done with this. You know? <laughs> like, so I don't know. Whatever. They're well, like, yeah, I, lo I love it. You yeah, know? yeah. I mean, I think that something I've been thinking about what you said and you were just talking about the the idea that um, like his curiosity and his style and his it becoming like this as this turning point in his career, doing something where he's like fully letting go of a traditional Hollywood narrative. He's not even pretending anymore. He's going where his curiosity leads him. It's full, like, mythopoetic cinema. And on this go-around, I was so interested in that when thinking about that, like, that step away from a conventional Hollywood narrative is him adapting the fakest Hollywood pre-built narrative there is, like, this version of Pocahontas. Like, it doesn't even have, like, a critical eye on that story in its simplest form like it's the plot of this film is still basically the plot of the disney pocahontas right and like that's not his concern with his like wonder and myth and as you even said kind of this idea of like well what could a better world have looked like there is this sort of utopia that's built into into part of the film but it was interesting revisiting it with that context, because, yeah, of course, right? Like, Pocahontas was 12 when John Smith met her. It's, like, debunked. The, the reality is probably more like a Jossie Zare Montero movie than uh, <laughs> anything that we see <laughs> in in A New World. But I was thinking about how interesting it is that he is taking what feels like a pre-built standard Hollywood story, and he's using that core to create something that is, like, so far removed from a traditional storytelling structure and style. I mean, to be fair, he 
he, I, I, I think he did that as well with the Thin Red Line. Sure. You know, I mean, he he Trojan horsed one of the most like tried and tested like Hollywood spectacle films with with uh, all of his, you know, Heideggerian philosophy and, and reflections on being and stuff like that. You know, in the same year that fucking Saving Private Ryan came out, which which you see very evident in the, the reactions to those two films. I mean, months apart, they were released and, and, and America like showed up and saluted Steven Spielberg's movie and then were very excited about Malick's film being like, great, we're going to get Steve, you were going to get Saving Private Ryan in the Pacific and showed up to that it had a great initial box office and then it gradually kind of faded away because people were like wait what what's going on here i mean there's some battle sequences but like what the <laughs> what the heck is going on in this movie and so i i think he was he was kind of already on that in the thin red line and and again a lot of those same kinds of methods of of how he made that film and and again the stories of the various versions that that were originally put forward you know the the maybe the six hour work print that he had that starred brad pitt and billy bob thornton and stuff like that i mean yeah, well, don't talk shit. to christopher Plummer about this film oh my <laughs> god you know yeah, yeah. i mean i mean james horner either but you know that's it's also something he has sure. in common with Michael Mann. Sure. Composers furiously writing open letters. Like, <laughs> they just copied and pasted my score. It's like, yeah, they're the director. I yeah. Don't know. Anyway. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, I mean, like, I, I I guess like I I I do like agree with with that, you know, the the idea though that that Malik is I think like Michael Mann, somebody that that I've always seen as as a, a, a filmmaker who's who's very interested in authenticity, but not interested in realism at all. And and in doing so, they both uh, in their work uh, showcase so much like to me, like breathtaking, like liberation of being like here are all the trappings of of this, you know, this big grandiose Hollywood filmmaking, but then like shed those shackles to make things that are like breathtaking and 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 one of a kind, you know? And and this is definitely like, yeah, one of one of those films that that I look at, that I've always looked at. And and yeah, more than anything, I I I really do scratch my head and go like how did this get made? I, I know how it got made because as you've said on paper, like I can see the Hollywood executives being like, perfect. You know, we got Colin Farrell, we got the hot guy, we've got Pocahontas, the love story. We've got it all, you know? And, and, and then this is what comes out of it. And I think the only reason why he continued to get away with it for as long as he did get away with it is because they literally can't understand his movies. They can't understand them at all. Uh, and I think that's what makes them always, for me, uh, films that I've I've continued to revisit because his movies are even for me, uh, they 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 hold you at bay. They hold you at bay in a very interesting sort of manner where, as much as they kind of keep you at a distance where you you can't fully ever 
understand everything that's going on here. Certainly the decisions that were being made in their construction, uh, but but films that are just so engrossing nonetheless. They're films that demand of you, you know? They demand you not to try to understand them, but more than anything, to just simply like let yourself like feel, let yourself feel something and not any one particular thing, but lots and lots of different things. I think for me, you know, that's what I've always been most thankful for in the work of Terrence Malick is the ability to engage with films that are not disposable in any way, shape, or form. And I think to your comment earlier, like, he's clearly had such an influence, right? And, and such an effect on a whole litany of filmmakers who've come after him. You know, I, I, I think of like, again, the, the Dave Hickey thing about Pollock. It's like, yeah, he was the greatest and the worst thing that ever happened to the art world. And I've kind of felt that in many ways about Terrence Malick, that he is certainly one of the greatest because of all these things we're talking about here, and one of the worst, because of all the people who have come out and tried to, to do Malik, to do what Malik does, but, but can't. They can't. Hopelessly, they can't. And they just become these very kind of like vacuous, dreamy, and not in a good kind of dreamy way, just, just these sort of like pretty pictures. You know, it's like I was thinking of, uh, uh, what's that fucking guy who made Ain't Them Body Saints? David Lowry, like he's one of the worst offenders in this regard. And Lowry's movies to me are just hollow, completely hollow on the inside. With Malick, like regardless of whatever you think is going on inside them, you can never, ever make the case that they're hollow, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's again, like especially in, in advertising, people have, of course, long complained about the Terrence malification of, of advertising where we have like car commercials done in the, the superficial aesthetics of beauty. Uh, but you know, it was only a couple weeks ago when Ryan brought up the sublime. And I think that equally apl applies to Malik, right? Because the sublime also involves terror and mm -hmm. Malik is interested in the relationship between the people and the landscape and nature. And again, it's Christian shit. We're in the Garden of Eden in Malik's mind, this sort of like, oh, humans, you know, like we're always fucking up, you know, that sort of thing. And it's like, that's what that's what it's all about. You know, I don't know. Well, both of these films to me, like in just just linking both of the films, like they're both poets. Well, uh, sure. Very much uh, so. Yes. <laughs> But what I was going to say is that both of these films, to me, are explorations of of the idea of like being. You know, these are both like oh, yeah. these these films are both deeply, deeply concerned with capital B being, uh, and they 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 engage with it obviously in in different ways. But these are both films about life and about how we move through the world 
that surrounds us. In the one case, you know, the, the, the modern world filled with all of its strange idiosyncrasies and, and curious people and, and buses and, and public parks and things like that. You songs. Know? Songs, yeah. And, and the other, yeah, his, 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 uh, his a much more like primordial sense of the world, you know, the world in its formation, the world in its, in its, in its like nervous first steps, you know, when, when we were just starting to explore it for the very first time, well, certain people exploring it, I guess everybody exploring it in their own ways, but, but yeah, these are both great films about exploring the the beauty and i think you're you're very apt in saying also like the horror of life on this planet especially life among people people who bump into each other in various ways i was surprised at how many rhymes there were you know i've i had seen the new world before and i was familiar with zhao's work and i knew zhao's work was nothing like terry's but i watched Rewatch the new world first and then I kind of popped on come and go and I'm like well I'm you know we'll see what kind of connections we actually find here but it's funny because very early on one of the very first bus rides that Montero's character is going on he's he's moving around the bus looking up into the sky trying to find something and he's looking out the window and he's like almost gazing up to the heavens and I can't remember if it's on the bus or soon after when he's doing something similar but someone asks him you know what what are you doing? What are you looking for? And he says, I was in a cloud. I was in cuckoo land. And I'm like, he's just like that. You could ask to say it the same thing about any character in a Terrence Malick movie. Like, oh, I'm sorry. I was yeah. in a cloud. I was in cuckoo land. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Certainly, certainly John Smith. Yeah. You know? <laughs> a, yeah. I love John Smith's journey. Like it was a dream. No, it wasn't a dream. It was a dream. No, it wasn't a dream. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nailed it. Yeah, know? yeah. It's like as radically different the form is, you know, the camera only moves twice, I think, in come and go. Otherwise, it's like totally static. And of course, the camera is nonstop moving and floating as in the Terrence Malick film, as you would expect. Um, even with that juxtaposition too, of course, Montero, here he is in the modern world, but he does have a very specific connection to nature throughout the film. The tree of life. The tree of life. Well, very, very literally actually. Um, so it's, it's a Mexican cypress tree and there's actually a really lovely piece that's in like movie notebook about this tree. Did you read it? Okay. Yeah, no, it's really, Nabil pointed it out to me. Uh, there was an interesting series of essays about like nature in film and there's a nice write up on this film and the tree itself, but this tree, uh, interestingly enough, the leaves for it are used to treat cancer. And I don't know if he knew that when he was making it, but like there's there is this li- the the essay has this beautiful line that says there is life in those trees that transcends our tired bodies and Zhao Vuvu goes to this tree seven times in the film uh, they're like these regular intervals they almost feel like the chapter cards in a new world 
uh, these like markers as we're moving through the film. I also read that that little like park is like where like crooks and cinephiles and like perverts hung out, you exactly. know? So like it's also just that, you know? Yep. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. It was like a, a meeting place that now is very different. I actually, Nabil, it's so funny. When I was in Lisbon, he took me on the fucking come and go tour knowing I was going to see it. He, yeah. And it was like so funny. Cause I was like kind of irritated to be like, Ryan, this tree is uh, and i had just seen uh god's comedy and he takes me to this tree and he's like you will see this tree he's like you'll see this tree and come and go the there's many great scenes here and then he takes me he's taking molly and i to fucking the parliament we're like walking by the parliament this beautiful building in lisbon he's like ryan there's this amazing scene in montero's come and go molly you must see this film too where montero talks about masturbation with this woman and talks about the the asian blowjob uh, on the steps here of parliament it's very funny that he did that <laughs> i was like molly doesn't even know this shit, man. <laughs> but he took me to like all these places like always wow. referring to this movie which is like so funny in hindsight <laughs> that i've seen oh, it. Wow. <laughs> the very few locations that there are in come and go because much of it is just in his home uh, well, of course, New World is all over the damn place. We even go north, which I think is we like do. amazing. We go north. We go east. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We go. Yeah. We go everywhere. <laughs> we really do. We go all around. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, they are iconoclastic poets. One's more of like a folk artist and one's more of like a religious artist. And I think, you know, there's like some beautiful sort of oppositions as well, because uh Montero is such like a whatever, some kind of like surrealist anarchist prankster at and art. A you know? Catholic too. Mm, there you go. And and of course Terry, uh, not very lapsed. No, you know? <laughs> not uh, even a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> not even a little bit. Um, and so that was an, an interesting thing, especially to the wonderful shout out to. Uh, St. Vincent de Paul as he takes the woman, the house member of parliament to, it just cuts to them inside this cafe and she's kind of like, what is this dump that you've taken me to? And he's like, hey, they serve liquor here, you know? And it's, yeah, the St. Vincent de Paul like charity shop or something and we don't see it. And then he goes on a tirade about, you know, the Torquemada and I was like, oh my God, we're back in pit in the pendulum territory. (laughs) Uh, And then, yeah, just like accusing the the Archbishop of Milwaukee of being a pedophile or whatever. So I was like, (laughs) yes, we have like the, the, the guy who hates, the European guy who hates the church, you know? Mm-hmm. A very, uh, a very wonderful, wonderful thing there. One thing that I thought was kind of insane, just because we're talking about what these films do have in common, uh, the ultimate thing for me is that they both have an identical scene in them where the lead character is accosted by like three punk boys. And <laughs> there's like a great scene when, when John Smith comes back from having lived with the native americans for a significant amount of time and he arrives back at the camp and it's just like grotesque it's everything's muddy and wet and everyone's sick everybody's dying half the people aren't even there anymore everyone's starved there's just shit and piss everywhere and he walks into the camp and there's these three little cockney shits just like covered in dirt just like yelling at him and poking him and being like oh what you, we didn't think you come back fixing the course where have you been you look like you've come back from the death 
Where's Captain Ratcliffe? No word. You know, like just talking about all the things that have been happening. Yeah. The colony urchins. Exactly. And then there's a I was so funny to me that then in Come and Go, there's a scene where he goes to that tree, maybe for the fourth or fifth time. And there's these three boys that have these little like toy cap pistols and they're just like open firing on Montero who plays along and pretends to play dead, you know. But I thought it was just like a weird little happenstance of, yeah, the local urchins going after um, <laughs> our heroes in both films. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think, though, that, uh, again, diving a little bit deeper into also what I think both filmmakers are ultimately presenting to us about these questions of being, these questions of existence. You know, I, I see a, a, a major um, spiritual, philosophical connection there as well, and not just in, in, uh, in, in subject, but even in, in certain sorts of ideas specific ideas and conclusions that they're making malik in the new world like uh, like in a lot of his films right he's using whatever scenario is is being presented to us so whether it's the the, the battle of guadalcanal or you know the the discovery of the new world or growing up in texas right these become his uh, sort of like platforms to present a lot of his his ideas and showing us how people move through the world and what the world does to them and the choices and decisions that people make and how those affect people on like deep spiritual levels, you know. Malik is, uh, you know, a big like, I mean, it's 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 well documented that he is a, a major Heidegger stan. And a lot of like his ideas about being come into uh, a, a concept that that Heidegger puts forward and obviously like thousands and thousands of pages about like existence and the choices we make and and how to live I think more fully more actualized and and how to like give in to what is what is uh, the the forces given to the forces shall we say that that limit us that limit our potential and in the case of the new world right I think we see that most clearly through John Smith's journey John Smith's journey of first finding so much freedom and liberation in truly becoming like free and one with the world and and one with all of these new people in these new places i mean virgin lands is an idea that is explored in great detail in many different ways by by uh, terence malick in this film but you know uh john smith says at a certain point like you can't walk two paths at once and his big sort of like tragedy is is in going and finding so much uh deep spiritual like joy like this sort of awakening he has here in this this place of of seemingly like endless potential and possibilities it's all then sort of 
pushed aside when, yeah, Christopher Plummer's character, I forget what his name is, uh, his character. Uh, no one has names in this movie. Yeah, I know he has, he does have an actual name because he is based off a historical character, but I'm blanking on it because again, like. Captain Newport. Yes, Captain Newport. Yeah, Newport. Um, when Newport shows back up after John Smith's time with Pocahontas with the Native Americans when he has learned so much, uh, Newport comes back with more settlers, more resources, and then says to John Smith, like, hey, the king is very pleased with what you've done with your work here. Now you have the opportunity to basically be me, to go run your own expedition, to go find what we've been looking for, right? This passage through this land, right? The, the, the Indies, the passage to the Indies is what they're looking for. And he's faced with that choice. What do I do? Do I continue to, to pursue this here with Pocahontas, with all these people, to, to, to literally spin around in the forest and, and do whatever the hell I want all day and, and just open myself to discovery, to, to learning, and, and learning in a way that is beautiful, romantic, and, and deeply, deeply rewarding? Or do I go back to, quote, civilization, to the world that's being designed by other people and fit in, more or less, you know, play the game, play the system. And you see that, you know, that he chooses to go back. He chooses to go back. And that is, like, horrible. It's, it's, it's so crushing to experience that. And again, the, the character Zhao Vu Vu is presenting, I think, very similar ideas of, of like, look, there's, there's two ways to live. You can, you can be yourself and you can just be this, this person that is weird and strange and open to... And obsessed with anuses. Obsessed with anuses. Just oh, yes. open to sensations and tastes and experiences and knowledge and ideas. And, and again, this idea that, that you know, we've, we've talked about becomings quite a bit on here, that, like, life should just be one constant sense of becoming, of, of waking up every day and, and learning and growing and changing and trying something new. Or, you know, I guess we could just be a cop or something like that, you know? I mean, there's that amazing sequence where he's, like, he's singing, singing that song or something like that. <laughs> Jorginho, bem parido, era gordo como um chuvo e tinha forte complexão. Mamava litros de leite nas vacas da região. Foi educado a preceito de forma tradicional. Daquela santa boquinha não vinha sabor a sal. Quando ainda gatinhava, logo se viu ser prendado. Já sabia o catecismo, bem de cor e salteado. Uh, and it goes on forever, this like strange like fable that's kind of like an anti-cop song in a way to this like police woman. It's like spinning just, a music box, yeah. Yeah, you know, and I feel like that's that was like one of the funniest moments of the film to me because again i feel like that is for someone who is not familiar with his work i i feel 
in my own, like just this week of discovery and trying to learn more about this guy and what makes him tick, like part of that, that playfulness and that humor that you're talking about, the absurdity of, of these two things being in a room together, you know, and, and one being this literal sort of symbol of state authority, a cop and him, a guy who is celebrating like the lack of authority that has governed his life and his existence, you know? So again, this is a really long winded way of saying that. I think <laughs> like beyond just the fact that both of these movies are about like, Hey, life, huh? What about life? It's like, nah, it's like, it isn't just about life. It's about how we move through life and we have choices. And, and two very big choices are, are you going to be a fucking like lackey for the state and for capitalism and for order and numbering numbers? Or are you going to look up at the sky and fucking spin around and wonder about all the things you don't know and can't ever possibly know? That's why I love Jao Cesar Montero's films so much, because he never concedes to presenting himself in a way that would be even remotely socially acceptable. <laughs> he's, he's uncompromising in his iconoclasm. I mean, in, in, in God's comedy, the, the core plot line of that movie basically is he's a guy running an ice cream shop that only hires like beautiful young women, and he also has like this huge album collection of pubic hair that he is like developing over time and even sources like queen victoria's pubic hair uh and he has like an <laughs> archive that, that he keeps of home and that's just like the tip of the iceberg of like the perversities of that film and that's that's the thing about him is just he's not apologetic and that's not why I inherently like it. It's just it, it's easier to take it on its own terms because he's never trying to make an excuse for his behavior. He is just becoming. He is just who he is. And it's it's funny that so many of these reflections in Come and Go are so explicit in the dialogue. His characters in other films kind of talk like human beings, unlike they do in, in Come and Go. There's He does say shit like this all the time in his movies. Like when he's a figure in it, he just like speaks in aphorisms, says vulgar wisdom, says goofy theoretical stuff but the dialogue in come and go feels like the narration in a terrence malick movie mm -hmm. it's like kind of impossible to follow they feel like just glimpses into just weird thoughts that are jumping all around the room yeah i found it extremely hard to follow at points yes. to be honest oh, you know? <laughs> when you were describing that song andy i was like oh is that what that story was about like he lost me in that one actually i just laughed Dude, at the image <laughs> listen to the notes i have on that song uh he, he well first of all he was as fat as a badger and had a fine constitution i also wrote the poison of perversion a rich fascist censor of deprivation TV is opium, lice, the era of globalization, demagogues, hollow democracy, robber state, perversion, a bank was robbed, and then the cop calls it an infernal ballad. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, you know, like, Man, he's, he's all over the place. A good, good take on it. it. It definitely is an infernal ballad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this one, without a doubt, has the most aggressive dialogue because i don't even normally like movies where people talk like this to each other because it gives me a little bit of a headache um and that was okay for this one because it felt very special at the tail end of his career but <laughs> that's one of the things when i say like please don't be discouraged uh <laughs> you will be able to follow his other films however i did think the like 
the haze of this film was quite funny because there were there were I feel like when I look at my notes, I just have all of these crazy lines out of context that I think are like quite nice. But it's like, yeah, I'm trying to remember when he was even saying so many of these things. I mean, that's just like the peculiar thing about it. Well, yeah. I mean, again, that's a very like very Malik like yeah. way. Where of- am I? Yeah, of offering things, you know, so many of the 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 moments of like voiceover in in Malick's films and even like dialogue, they they often like arrive like totally seemingly devoid of like context. Uh, th- at times, it seems that these things are linked to the images, and at other times, they they don't seem linked to the particular limit images that we're seeing at that moment, like at all. And I think that's often been for people who are like detractors of Malik or who look at his films and are just kind of like, I don't get it or whatever. It's like, well, it's not necessarily there to get. And again, I, th- I think that that's something that like links the, the experience of both of, of these yes. particular films. It isn't about like, getting some some you know some central overarching like narrative thread or idea uh malik i i i've always said you know malik is is a great example of of a filmmaker that i would put forward to try to explain to somebody the difference to me in art uh and in this case cinema the difference between somebody who puts forward representations and somebody who puts forward like presentations you know spielberg the king of representation the king of of representation but malik he puts forward presentations to me one of the big differences is that a representation is is asking a question and then answering it very clearly throughout the film for us. And we all walk away and go, here was the question that was proposed at the beginning of the film. And at the ending, that question was resoundingly answered for us. And we all walk away with that question. Was World War II good? Yes, it was, right? You know, or something like that, you know? Uh, But Malick puts forward a presentation. His movies are messier, and I'm putting that in quotation marks, because when we walk away, we don't have a clear answer about what we just saw and heard. There is only this. All else is unreal. We rise. We rise. 
he is asking questions throughout his films, and he himself doesn't have the answers for them. His movies are his own way of grappling with, with things that have troubled him and occupied his thinking for his entire life and will continue to occupy him until the day he dies. I don't feel from one film to the next he's ever kind of then showed up and been like, hey, everybody, I figured it out. I've got it, you know? Right. If anything, when you've watched a lot of his movies, it seemed like he's only gotten more confused and more perplexed and more troubled as his life has gone on. And he's met more people and seen more ways of working and living and 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 seen more history unfolding in front of him. He is presenting ideas, presenting things for us to play with to walk away with and 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 what he's ultimately saying is isn't it awesome to be able to grapple with these things these questions that means we're alive that means we're actually living i was going to say i mean everything you just said you could say the exact same thing about come and go exactly yeah i mean it's it truly that's what most of this befuddling dialogue can ultimately just be interpreted as if you gather it all up. I feel as though in his other films, there's a clarity of what people are saying to each other, forward momentum, what's happening. And in this film, to him, that's what life is. It's just this collection of things that as he's nearing the end, he doesn't have any definitive answers on. He can instead just spend time with people, finding connection and saying things that are popping into his head because he doesn't have like one big grand statement for us at the end, just a collection of thoughts, some of which we may understand and others which may just totally fly past us as they might be flying past him. I mean, there's the moment in the film where it seemingly like randomly, you know, when he's just like riding on the bus uh, and and he's suddenly tapped on the shoulder by someone who's sitting behind him. And it's this, uh, I, I, I don't really know if I fully understood what her job was other than she kind of worked for the government. Was she a lawyer? What was her deal? Like, was she a... I mean, she just said she was, like, going to work in the house. I mean, she might be an MP. Yeah, yeah. some so sort of a yeah. government job of some sort. And she's just kind of like, hey, whoa, you know, and they haven't seen each other for years. And then they go on to basically just kind of like fuck off. Well, he certainly is just always fucking off. But but it seems like she basically is like, well, I'm just going to now fuck off and and spend the afternoon with with you, with a good friend who I haven't seen in years. And and they, you know, yes, we're then treated to, you know, stories and funny little bits and this really long explanation of, yes, as you've already kind of <laughs> alluded to, uh, a very physically sounding complicated blowjob uh, that, that she that, that he goes into great detail about and they just spend this afternoon together and and then at the end when they're parting she says like well when are we going to see each other again as they're they're saying goodbye to each other and he replies to her like i think uh if i'm remembering this correctly he says when we're older when we're older and it's this very kind of like open-ended goodbye that also implies too, like, well, when we've experienced more about life, when we've gone and, 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 
and learned and shared and experienced these things when we come together. But there's also a whole nother reading that now I have so much more context for in that he was dying. And it's like, well, how do you say goodbye to someone, to a good friend? How do you say, well, this will probably be the last time that we ever actually meet, you know, but he, he, he doesn't use that moment to just be like, well, I'm dying. This is it. Goodbye. It's just left very, very ambiguously, very sort of like, Hey, when, when we're older. Yeah. I think there's a lot of elusive details in that pairing too, just because that actress for context is in like a great majority of his films. And I think that the confusion over what her role was in this was possibly like making jokes about her herself in like other films of his. But there's also that. There's sort of like a friendship, I think, built in being like, these, this is just a collaborator of his. So there's like that kind of sharing of conversations. Yeah, like that whole, that whole like, yeah, sort of trip they have, which is like a couple scenes, a couple shots, you know, so it's like a good chunk of the film. But uh, there's that part when he's talking about religion in the cafe and he is making fun of Jesus and he, he talks about how, like, Jesus is, was a great pantomime actor. Uh, and then it's amazing, right? So, so he says that he preached what everyone already knew, that this life is a veil of tears and that there's no solution to the promise of death or even the promise of life. And he says, the problem is interesting, but never the solution. And again, that's, I think, back to a sort of shared philosophy with Malik is like, and of course, Malik is coming to the same conclusion from a believer. And he's coming to this conclusion as a non-believer that the problem is interesting, not the solution. Right. And he says, man has to live with the insoluble problems of life. And I think that's also what Malik is doing in his construction of the new world is, uh, reveling in the contradictions of it all as he often is because that's where again there's a spark there's this interesting thing happening in these clashes uh and yeah Zhao Vuvu is the same way I mean like all of a sudden you know well <laughs> you you brought up when he's like shot to death in the public square by the children with the fake pistols but yeah. right before that there's like an amazing cut to the park from when he's on the bus and there's like some businessman who like does a sig heil and is like just saying crazy racist shit and Zhao Vu like confronts him uh and then he says uh acts of barbarity always precede the fall of empires and then it like hard cuts and then these kids like shoot him dead <laughs> in the park i mean it's like yeah it's Man, it's like, a, again, it's a grab bag of like, yeah, he's sort of, yes, this like aphoristic prophet who's totally deranged, but like, there's so much and so many ideas played with, right? Like, even, God, I was, again, we have to talk about Oliveira because nowhere the vainglory of command starts with like the 360 degree shot around the the tree you know the tree of life these portuguese guys man yeah. they love their <laughs> they love their tree of life but i think my favorite shot in the entire film is when he goes to the park and he's sitting under the tree and that girl rides her bike by and then you notice 
that she rides by again, and then you notice that she rides by again, and this becomes like a sort of slapstick gag that builds up over like, God, five, six, seven minutes, till then he just gets up out of the, or off the park bench and chases after her. I mean, this guy's fucking dying of cancer, but like he gets so horny that he just has, like he can't contain himself anymore, you know? But it's this insane, just like surreal, long take set piece and it was it was cracking me up so much because I'm like you know I'm a good boy I'm taking notes and I'm like she rides around again and again and again you know what it it now that I'm like reflecting on a lot of the the various like scenes and sequences and just kind of like him uh it's so apparent to me that that he must be you know, we were talking about, you know, the tramp or, or you know, Woody Allen or Monsieur Lowe. But to me now, the more I think about it, it's so apparent that he must adore the Marx Brothers so much. Uh, at least like seeing what I saw of him in this film, because he's kind of all three Marx Brothers at the <laughs> same time. You know what I mean? Like he he's he's got kind of like Groucho's. Uh, uh, you know, clear parody of the idea of a sort of like reactionary man about town, middle class guy. He's got like Chico's like love of just sort of like making our language like no longer make sense to us in the way that that words get sort of like twisted around in terms of their meaning. And then also, yes, the just extremely horny version of like Harpo who will just leap up and just chase a woman down the street, you know, like it's like, he's like all three Marx brothers at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a really funny line in the film where he says to one of the characters, like, I don't know a thing about cinema, which is in itself like an inherent joke just because he was a critic. He's like written a lot about cinema and was like a, obviously like a student. Uh, I mean, this film is like riffing on some silent film too. Oh, yeah. Like, well, he's saluting all kinds of shit and making nonstop. all kinds of film jokes. I mean, he asks, uh, his cleaning lady to fart on him while he reenacts Citizen Kane. Yeah. You know, yes. he's like Rosebud. And, and he's like, yeah, you need to make a noisier fart when we're acting this out. You know? <laughs> Gotta be one of the funniest moments in any movie ever made when like he's having her fart on him and he says like, wow, like it's smells of like perfume and roses. Like I applaud you, my dear, but for the sake of our scene, I'm going to have to plug my nose and pretend that it <laughs> was it was foul (laughs) oh my god so fucking funny but yeah he loves he clearly loves old comedians too because i even see so much of it's kind of a leap but i see so much of jerry lewis and and some of his instincts marge you mentioned that he has that line where he says jesus was the great pantomime artist and i feel like there's a scene in this film where Javuvu is like cleaning the floor while some music is playing and that is like I feel the most 
the most he could accomplish in his state of health that is like a riff on the Jerry Lewis doing the typewriter to the tune of music. You know, he's like scrubbing the floor to the tune of what he's listening to. And then there's a funny reversal where we see it all seemingly happen again and we watch the woman that he was watching while he was doing that. Yeah, he hired her to clean the house, but he's cleaning the house while she just like lies on the ottoman Mm -hmm. uh, and menstruates. (laughs) Yes, yes. I mean, and that's really what he hired her for. That's what Joe Of course, dude. Yeah. (laughs) You want a cleaning lady? But that's the thing. There's so... There's... There's so many different kinds of performance in this film, from song to dance to music. I mean, I think he's a very, just from my first glance, I can tell, like, he's thinking about sound in a serious way, but also thinking about in that kind of, like, folk tale sense of, like, oh, songs of the people, you know, right? This kind of, like, I mean, their their interaction with him in the first cleaning lady when they're, like, going over all that communist shit i was like laughing out loud they were being so fucking weird and funny uh but telling yeah telling a story not through through narrative but through different kinds of music folk music music of the people accordion music opera i mean he's pulling not just from cinema as well it almost felt like if i knew more about like portuguese music or whatever or opera uh, i could probably decipher some of the choices maybe but it felt like there was also that like i'm dying and i'm gonna put like just like bangers that I love in here, yeah. tunes that Bella Ciao, uh, dude. yeah, dude. Yeah. <laughs> but I do, I love that sequence with with the girl you were talking about when the cleaning woman when he's first hiring her and she's talking about how she, you know, she's a communist. Uh, and wonders if she should refer to him as comrade. But then she goes like, "Well, what are what are the terms?" We haven't talked about the terms of my employment. And he goes, oh, I, I pay very badly to keep your revolutionary spirit alive. <laughs> See, that's, again, I think, again, not in the exact same way, but that's very much also, uh, I think, a, a huge aspect of Terrence Malick's creative process pulling from all these different resources and influences and in his films kind of seeing them all spill out unfold in front of us i mean i remember hearing a story about uh the thin red line when he was like like uh, pitching to some actors even like the experience of what it was going to be like to be in the film. And I, I think it might've been Sean Penn who said that like, yeah, Terrence Malick had me over at his house and he was just trying to like explain the film to me. And then he just started like playing Japanese drums in his living room to be like, this is what the movie's going to be. This is what it's going to be like. And was just like playing Japanese drums in his living room for him. But, but again, like Malick, somebody who, who uh, it's, it's very clear, like his connections to music, certainly to classical music, to opera as well, and, and how that comes out in his films, where we sometimes are just treated to almost like his idea of interpreting that music more than anything else, devoid again of the narrative of the film per se, but just kind of like this beautiful piece of music, like what does it make me envision? How do I see this music, you know, on, on, on film? How does it look to me? How does it feel to me? Uh, but also like just dance in his own way, physical performance in his own way, music, 
life, physicality, acting, all those things. I mean, this is a guy that often will have actors, you know, do a scene and, and, and read this, this, you know, these pages of the script. And then he'll say to them, okay, we're going to do that again. I want you to, to have the same conversation, but this time and this take, you can't use any words. And then half the time he, he'll use that take where they had a whole big, long conversation, but now it's just in gesture. It's just in like looks and glances and, 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 you know, the, the touching of fingertips and that sort of thing. Like all of these influences come together to create again, his, his, his at times like very baffling films, you know, like the poor fucking actors who get involved in these things. That's what, that's what I've always heard. They either are like, this was the coolest experience I ever had making a film, or this was one of the most like infuriating experiences I had making a movie. It's interesting that he doesn't reuse a lot of actors, whether that's because the actors are, are not into it, but I found it funny that the, sole returning champion from the thin red line is the madman himself john savage everybody basically playing the same guy guy that goes insane yeah, but in like the 1600s you know i like to think that it was like it's like the great 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 grandfather of the guy in the thin red line you know i like to think in malik's even head like that's what it is you know this movie has one of my favorite examples of that with Malik, the like fucking over some actors who thought they were doing something totally different than what panned out. It's that great moment where Christopher Plummer is giving like a big rousing speech to everyone and he doesn't have a single close up. Yeah. It's the the angle is lingering on Colin Farrell who I don't even think is facing Christopher Plummer and Christopher Plummer is just like a figure in the background pacing back and forth, giving this speech. Yeah. And then the camera kind of just floats away, starts looking at some other stuff. And then we just go into a montage and throughout <laughs> Plummer's monologue, it just gets a little quieter. It yeah, like it just slow, fades out. <laughs> yeah, slowly <laughs> dissolves. So awesome. Something that was clearly like such a mannered, like studied English performance. And it just yeah. like drifts away in the wind. Yeah. Get wrecked, dude. Uh, I was reminded watching The New World that Terrence Malick was a student of Stanley Cavell's at Harvard. And it occurred to me because of that, you know, because I've, I've read the great Cavell book, uh, about screwball comedies and the comedy of remarriage. And then I was like the new world. It's a, it's a drama of remarriage and very different from the screwball <laughs> comedy of remarriage because she doesn't, get back together with the guy she broke up with. She has uh, another marriage, right? And I think that's, yeah, that's like a really interesting thing uh, to to revisit because, again, it's sort of like, yeah, the historical record is like, yeah, he probably like forced her to be his, his wife and, and all that in that sort of like ownership sense of that they had back then and, and all that. But it's like, Malik takes such a different approach to it. And I think that's where the sort of like utopian wishful thinking of his comes into play is like the character of Rolf who should be and could be like the villain of the film in this second marriage. And it's certainly shown like, yes, 
there's a huge difference between the quote marriage between her and Smith, this natural, intuitive romance versus this sort of arrangement, this sort of Christian business arrangement yeah. that sort of happens between Rolf. And it's like Malik doesn't hold back showing you that. But uh, in the end, it's like he's not cast as as a villain or as a pure villain because uh, Malik's searching for something else. That would be too easy. And I think it's crucial, too, that that's when he brings, like, not to jump to the end of the New World, but given that it's like this cyclical thing, he brings the Wagner, the Das Rheingold, back for the end with her and Rolf. And if you think about what that means, like, he uses it in the opening, so it's like this discovery, like two, two different sets of people seeing each other. And then he uses it with Colin Farrell at the camp when it's like bliss and they're all this like hanging out uh, with the Padawan, the Algonquin, right? And he's just living there, having the time of his life. And then that song plays and then it plays again at the end when she's sort of forgiven Rolf essentially uh, and sort of declared her love to him. And it's like, Man, yeah, like any other filmmaker, I think, you know, would have been more cynical about it or, or nastier about it in a way, honestly. Like, there's there's something, yeah. Yeah, I, that's the thing, though. I mean, you said you didn't want to jump to the end, but, like, I, now that you've started talking about that, it is something I was thinking about with these two films. Both of these films have, like, the best final seven minutes of like just about any movies there are and the the ending of the new world is so they're both just so transcendent and there's so much that leads up to the ending of come and go that we'll need to like give some context for but like the fact that a new world ends the way he cuts it together and with the music it's as if one becomes one with the natural world right like pocahontas is like running through the fields uh or the gardens even after we know she's dying on the ship on her way back, she's she's back in England, she's moving around, and we get this montage with nature, and it's as if she's, like, transcended herself and has, like, reconnected and, like, found peace and love and has had this becoming. And then with Come and Go, the final shot of this film is a lingering shot of Montero's left eye that blinks a few times and then stops blinking. And we have about five minutes of just looking into this man's eye, and you can see the park in the tree reflected in his iris. And then the classical music swells, and it's just... That's the goodbye image we have of this filmmaker. Is, is him gazing into our eyes as we're gazing deep into his. And, and there's this really beautiful line in the film. We honestly probably don't even need to get into it. Just the thing with his son, it's like kind of a fake plot line in the film but his son's like in jail and he comes back and he has this line where he says to the son that uh he's like you know you have your you have your whole future ahead of you i have my past full of smiles and i was thinking about that when you see that final image of his eye the idea that we're looking into this man's soul and seeing his whole life and seeing this collection of impressions and beauty and sadness everything it's all right there. It's just like such a loaded image. And I think both of these films, you know, it's you always got to end a three hour film with like a real a real bang, I guess. And I think both of these films really deliver. Yeah. I mean, Rolf 
in the end, describes her as the one who weaves things together. Yeah. And I think that's, too, like, the, the form is also, like, the thing. You know, Terrence is, the, is also the one that weaves things to get together. But it's, like, through his imagining of her, right? And, and also, like, the seriousness with which he takes her religion not Christianity, right, which she converts mm-hmm. to, but then still uh, has her own, you know, quote, pagan beliefs that she still obviously believes in, right? So, like, the conviction with with, with which he's like, yeah, time doesn't exist, you know? And, like, well, uh, in that religious I, sense. Yeah. I, I think that's why, for me, and I am a... I, I, I love... It should be pretty apparent, right? I love Terrence Malick, and I, I, I love this film. But I will say that this is of all of... Well, I shouldn't say of all of his films, right? But but of his great films, of his really, truly great films, uh, this is one that I have gone back and forth on the most in terms of its depiction of like her and like what she means and what she represents as well as the you know the deeper image of like the 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 native american experience you know and and seeing this obviously is like malik's romantic interpretation of it you know and seeing in pocahontas this symbol of like she is the new world she is the America that that Captain John Smith arrives to in chains. She is wild, untamed, free, raw, one with nature, right? She is this literal virgin land that they've come to to discover, you know, incidentally, accidentally, however you want to put it, right? But they're here, and that's like the relationship that we then see with with Captain Smith in the in the beginning of the film. It's this this voyage of discovery for both parties and it's messy and it's complicated and it's filled with peril and violence and betrayal and and tragedy and all these kinds of things. And then in like the second half, like Rolf represents like the second wave of that colonization of, all right, we're getting a handle on things. We're not, we're not, uh, we're not these like just dirty, disgusting guys clinging on to, to the edge of the shore, like trying to survive winter. Like we've got families coming in. We've got the church finally built, you know, we've got farms being erected. He's a fucking tobacco farmer for fuck's sake. You know, he's a landowner now in this new world, which shows that it's not that new anymore for these people. And then in this sequence, she's now putting on the clothes and the high heeled shoes and she's learning to read and she's learning to read the Bible and, and she's going through all this stuff. And again, I think in Malik's romantic view, he, he sort of sees this as like the, the, the flow of, of the best parts of civilization. Like when it, when it, when it works and when it's beautiful and when it's good, how we have cultures come together and, and share and learn. And so at the ending, when she is having her sort of like moment of ascendancy to, to perhaps the heavens or wherever, she's still wearing the dress, you know, she's wearing the dress of, of, you know, 
the the white civilization to European civilization, but she's barefoot and she's she's running around and she's doing very un sort of civilized by English standards kind of like ways of of moving around, you know, of just like running around and getting dirty and like splashing the the pond water all over herself. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I mean like she's she's in it and and that's Malik's moment of being like, see like this rocks, you know, yeah, that you the can synthesis. Yeah. The synthesis, you know, <laughs> but it's like, I'm telling you, like I've gone back and forth. Cause sometimes I've just been like, this is such a fucking naive ass. Like I can take. Oh yeah. You know? like, I mean, you could very easily just like not be forgiving with this film and like really point a finger and be like, you got some like little baby Disney brain here, Mr. Malik, uh, in, in how seriously and straightforward he treats the quote-unquote history of this or at least the story because it does it's still like i said if you were just to look at this film at a plot level it's just the disney pocahontas cartoon you got to go back to west studi dude at the beginning of the film when he tells the chief we need to kill these guys now while there's so few of them (laughs) like and it's like (laughs) damn dude like right he's right and why his journey's awesome in the extended cut because like we get to then see also him going to England. It's not just Pocahontas, but like his journey in England at the ending is so much more like, I don't know, this time around especially was so much more like meaningful and powerful and and uh uh like breathtaking for me because it's like he's getting on the boat when you know Rolf is taking Pocahontas back to 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 London and he's also on the boat, West Studi's character, and he tells Pocahontas like Hey, the chief told me to bring these sticks and I'm supposed to go to London to make a notch on the sticks for every Englishman I see, you know? And it's like, oh God, dude, poor guy, you know? Like, you're you're not going to be able to do that. And then it's like, he's wandering around in those like manicured, like English gardens that are like geometrically perfect, you know, like these trees that have been like planted in very like organized quote civilized ways and it's just so like haunting like the kind of like misty gray foggy english day and and here's poor west studi thousands of miles from the quote new world in the quote old world and he just like wanders into oblivion you know like yeah. where the hell is he going like what he's like that's it you know it's it's he's fade he's literally gonna just like fade away i mean that that is fucking beautiful in in the movie to me but but yeah i've always kind of gone back and forth on the whole yeah i mean it's Pocahontas a thing. <laughs> it's a bold gambit i saw someone describe it as malik pretends history doesn't exist you know and yes. i think he he does because for him it's not about history because history would mean he he knows yeah. what happened and we know that that he's not about that going like this is what happened like that's, that has nothing to do with the movie uh, as discussed and so like yeah it's just so fascinating that I, I felt the same way, you know, Andy, the first time I saw it, I, I struggled with it in, in certain ways. Uh, and then on, on my rewatch years ago, I, I, I reversed them. Uh, and I, I still think, yeah, no, I mean, like, it's just sort of like unresolved, like, <laughs> I mean, uh, in it's, my mind, it's the know? same thing for me with the thin red line, which is like, you know, one of the most like spiritually meaningful films in my life. And I sit there sometimes and say to people like, I cannot honestly say 
that this is a like an out and out anti-war film because Malik in, in his own kind of like Christian philosophical, like traditions, he's grappling with the problem of evil. And on a certain level, the statement in the thin red line is like, yes, war is terrible. War is bad. War is evil. But the whole point of evil existing is so that, good can exist so that we can measure good he he isn't naive to be like war's bad man imagine a world without war like malik's kind of saying like yeah look at the fucking world like war happens war is going to continue to happen but his ultimate statement is much more complicated in that he's kind of like hey Let's just say war exists. Let's all agree that war exists. We can still be decent people to one another, even in war. You know, so again, it's like this very kind of like deeper, nuanced, complicated, and and yeah, ultimately kind of like messy way, I think, of grappling with like the worst parts of what history has done to 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 the world, you know? Yeah, because he does present a variety of experience, you know? It it isn't just her story, although everything does sort of revolve around her experience, but like that Studi scene at the end shows is that we are shown a variety of ways in which people live, live together and live with nature. And that's like always his point is that we have choices. Yes. And they, they, and they're different Mm -hmm. as well. And, and whatever that means, you know, like Ryan, you brought it up earlier, but I think my favorite shot in the whole movie (laughs) coming back to it is, when the gates open at the fort, when he comes back from, you know, Padawan yeah. heaven and he comes back to reality, right? The dream is over and the gate swings open and contra to the, you know, the the tribe's city that he was just in, which is so industrious and vibrant yeah. and full of life and work and laughter. The gate opens. There are no, no, no work being done. No tools, nothing built, nothing finished. It's fucking muddy. There's a huge pool with a dog just sitting in it. (laughs) And then there's a cannon. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Right. And you're just like, oh my God, dude. (laughs) Like, this is how these guys are living. And then the further implication, too, about the original colonists is really funny. Where in a very short amount of time, it's like, and this guy isn't who he says he is. And it's like, and that guy isn't who he says he is. And it just starts to be revealed that they're all like criminals and con men, you know? And I do love the fact that, like, at multiple times throughout the, the journey of these fucking guys, like, you can go from being a guy with a noose around your neck to the president of the colony (laughs) in a matter of like five minutes you know and then in in five more minutes be once again like condemned to die and stripped of your title like that again is like his his i think yeah like his his indictment of just like how how absurd and ridiculous like so many aspects of society can be Right. It's like, look at here. This is the real hopeless savagery that Mm -hmm. John Smith comes back to. Just pure desolation. Yeah. I guess when we're thinking about then this idea of Malik's relationship to God and perhaps Malik's own naivete, there's a funny line that I think links these films where Montero, Javuvu, says that, you know, 
a naive God or God was naive and didn't foresee that Adam and Eve's action would make them equal with him. And we were talking about that idea of making making those decisions. And of course, you know, in, in Malik's new world, John Smith and Pocahontas are like, that's the Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden of this new world. But it's so funny all of Malik's perspectives on religion and good and evil and how it all fits together compared with Montero, who in the in the last like 45 minutes of this film is uh, essentially f- fucked to death by God with a giant strap on. And I so I read that in an interview where someone pointed out that like he, it is God that fucks him to death. I didn't catch it on this watch <laughs> that that was the reference, but it is like a nude woman with like a giant strap on wearing like a dark cloak who dances her way into his his bedroom and in what has to be one of the funniest cuts i think in all of cinema because you've got the emaciated javuvu lying in bed under the covers and he's very frightened at what he sees frightened and excited about what he sees uh coming into his bed and i mean i can't emphasize enough how thick and huge this this strap-on is i mean it's like it's probably thicker than Montero. It would like, split you in half. Like, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. like, and like, I, I think it's girth is bigger than the girth of Montero's entire body, you know? Um, but it's such a funny cut. Cause she like climbs into the bed and then he just like pulls the covers up a little bit higher. Cause he's, he's clearly stressed about it. And then it's like hard cut. We're in the hospital. It's hard to tell what direction the appendages, like if those are his legs leaning up in the air and it's a group of surgeons just at work with very wet sounding uh incisions and explorations going on in that tiny little man's body as they're trying to discover what uh intensely sizable object is is stuck in his rectum and that is you know that is what leads eventually to his death i think is the implication that that it took a very huge toll on him um <laughs> sure seems like it a pretty radical pretty radical uh, change of direction compared to what you find in the new world you know different different look at god and god's power (laughs) yeah Yeah, and that comes right after we see a flashback where he attends his wife's funeral and then attempts to to make love to her in the casket in the funeral parlor in front of everybody which is a fantastic and that's like Shot. that. That's the Nosferatu moment, right? Yep. Because it's it's like black and white and silent yep. as well. Yeah, yeah. Another resurrection, just like Pocahontas was res- resurrected. So was Montero's wife for a smooch uh, <laughs> coming out of the casket. Yeah. yeah. Th- thank God for the doctors that that kept him alive as long as they did. Uh, especially that nurse in his crazy hospital room where he's being spoon-fed some soup and behind him on a table is an American flag draped over like a chest with the the dildo saved seemingly as a souvenir and just above uh, a portrait of George W. Bush, like pointing his finger. One of the most perplexing images in all of cinema. (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess I'm, you know, I'm personally grateful for getting a chance to see a new world again. It's been at least 10 years since I've seen it, but I am, you know, I'm grateful for the opportunity to have introduced you both, uh, maybe in the wrong direction, but at least to the work of Jao Cesar Montero. Uh, I really hope you both 
go on to explore some of those films because he is definitely one of my guys now and I'm happy to have been able to share it. But I guess, Andy, I would ask you, you know, we've talked enough uh, uh, about what we're grateful for here. Is there any cinema that you yourself are are quite grateful for? Yeah, I mean, look, I feel like I... I uh, it, was a, it was a harsh topic to give you both because you are both such 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 lovers of cinema and it's so hard to narrow I mean, dude at a certain point in my frustration i was like i'm thankful for every movie what does this even mean you know? <laughs> i know like, i know jesus i know like i was reflecting on that i was just like man i'm glad i gave them this topic and not me because i would have like i would have been so spun up trying to trying to narrow it down so yeah look like Great Look, I've job. made a movie. It's impossible. Anyone yeah. who makes a movie, you know, I'm thankful for that. Even yes. if it sucks. You know? Yes, yes. I'm I'm thankful for the movie we made. You know, I'm thankful that we were able to finish it. You know, but like. Yeah, look, I, I appreciate you both like being game for it and and bringing these like great films. One obviously that I've 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 seen quite a few times and love, and and being introduced to something that I've I'd never seen before. So so great work, and I'm I'm thankful to my co-hosts for their ability to 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 hang in there and 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 bring us a great topic. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, damn. Yeah. I mean, like, look, we, we talked about the thin red line. I mean that, you know, that is a movie that means Big so thanks. much to me. Yeah. It means, <laughs> it means a lot to me. I mean, dude, it does rock that the new world is basically like, you know, if your favorite part of the thin red line was wit hanging out with like the Melanesians, boy, yeah. got a movie for you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, they like they literally like open the same way. Literally, like, people without swimming. the alligator. But... Yeah, people swimming in the water, you know, in the beautiful, like beautiful, the moss. clean water. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, you know, I guess some some others. I mean, like. I guess I just even like thinking about some of my favorite movies and uh, Claire Denis Beau Travail is a movie that like, yeah, like opened up such new horizons to my understanding of like what a movie could be, what it could look like, you know, what it could sound like, what it could feel like. So I'm extremely thankful for Claire Denis and Claire Denis Beau Travail very specifically. I think on a whole different angle as well, like... I'm just super thankful for for John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China because that movie is is a movie that I could put on any day and it will just like instantly improve my mood. I could be having the worst day of my life and if suddenly like I heard the opening chords of Big Trouble in Little China, I would just like all my troubles would melt away, you know? And so I'm thankful for the movies that that have like taught me and, and, and opened my eyes to, to the possibilities of, of movies as, as like confounding works of philosophical beauty and art and all these things. But I'm also just extremely thankful for, for being entertained and, and being like somebody who, who is fortunate enough to live in a world where we get to just like go on adventures, you know, go on fun little adventures. And, and that's like, to me, the, the, the sort of like two pillars that I've appreciated the most in, in cinema. I think like movies that are, are, are profound and, and movies that are also just like so much fun. So yeah. And obviously a million other movies, right. But we don't have time for all that. Well, it was Andy's topic this week and next week it is 
Ryan's topic. What do you have for us this time? Yes. Uh, well, as I mentioned before we started, um, Molly and I are going to go on a little trip in December. And last time we took a trip, we went to Lisbon. And I said, let's... It's all about uh, you. Yeah. It's all about me. It's all about me. Uh, I was like, let's watch some films from Lisbon. This time, Molly and I are going to Prague. I'm not going to limit it to the city, but I would like the topic next week to be check it out. <laughs> Stop yourself. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> they get it. Okay, thanks. That's the topic. <laughs> you know, when I was in Czech Republic, I learned that they produce most of the world's meth. I've heard that too. In the Ore Mountains. But I had a great time there. So I'm excited to go back. Uh, sounds good. And uh, as always, you can follow us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts and Spotify and other places on the internet. And you can send us emails at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Quando foste ter com a tua amada, João, nunca te esqueças de levar o chicote. 